Rocky Mount Baptist Church. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about this morning and uh, what we're going to look at, which is Luke chapter 10, if you have your Bible, uh, Luke chapter 10. And uh, this might be maybe different, um, but maybe if, um, if it's all right with you all, if, 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 we could, if you could stand with me in the reading of God's word, um, and we'll pray, and then we'll get into our passage this morning. <clears throat> Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37 And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly, Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell amongst robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite... When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side as well. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said to Jesus, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go, and you do likewise. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Holy Father, we do thank you so much that we can open up your word this morning as believers, as a fellowship of believers. We ask God that you would honor, that you would bless your word as it goes out this morning, that it wouldn't just stir us, it wouldn't just uh, impact us, but Father, as you said, it will change our life. So Lord, help us even now to be good students of your word as we look into this passage. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. This is a very common passage. I think we've all heard of this before, the Good Samaritan. I mean, there are flannel graphs made. There is probably a whole empire of church things for this passage because it is so common. But it is probably one of the most um, misinterpreted passages or stories of Jesus Christ. It is a parable. It is a story. But uh, what this passage is not, it is not a passage of good humanitarian aid. It is not a passage that would warn us to go out and try to do something for the world. Because after all, we're Christians, we should be doing good. No, this is a story about the law of God and love. That's it. And all the characters we're going to look at this morning, it is a story. They're not real. Some parts of the story may be true, but 
the characters in the story are not true. So we can speculate about the lawyer, we can speculate about the good Samaritan, we can do all these things, but at the end of the day, Jesus tells a story to illustrate a greater point. And so what this passage is not, it is not just a mantra, again, for good humanitarian work. It is not something just to blow by, thinking, okay, let's teach this to the kids in Sunday school because we all need to be good Samaritans. No, this is a very important story that Jesus told in the Gospel of Luke. But I'd like to frame this story in the greater context of the passage here in Luke chapter 10, and I think that is very, very important. Because as you look at Mark, you look at John, you look at Matthew, all of those writers kind of write their narrative in a different way. Everything's kind of more scrambled with those authors. But Luke somehow puts into chronological order the story of the passion. It's as if Luke, starting in chapter 9, verse 51, is literally taking his readers step by step up to Calvary. In fact, as you look at Chapter 9, verse 51, 13, verse 22, 17, verse 11, 18, 31, and 19, 28. All of those passages say, and Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. And so this story falls on that path, if you will, of Jesus going up to Calvary. And that is very, very important because behind and below this story is another is another story that Jesus through his word tells us which is about the return of the 72 but those aren't stories like the parable but you know what I mean and then Mary and Martha if you look at uh, verse 17 of chapter 10 it says the 72 returned with joy saying Lord even the demons are subject to us to your name and he said to them I saw scorpions and lightning from heaven behold I have given you authority to read on uh, tread on serpents and scorpions and all of the power of the enemy wow What power? (laughs) Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And then we all know the through for Mary and Martha at the very bottom of this chapter in verses 38 through 42. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed her in her her house. And and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Being a Mary doing. Sitting at the Lord Jesus' feet. Being a disciple. Who will inherit eternal life. And so this passage this morning in Luke chapter 10 is going to answer that very question. Eternal life. So let's get into it. Verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this isn't a lawyer like we know them today. This isn't a lawyer that you go and file a divorce. This isn't a lawyer who's going to settle some matters that maybe need some legal help. This is a PhD, a doctorate of the Mosaic Law. 
all 600 and plus of those laws. He would know them verbatim. And so he is wanting to test this Jesus. And I think if there are any teachers in the room, I'm sure you may have students that do that to you. They're asking a question, but the question's being posed in such a context, maybe in such a motive, to, to, to get you. Is two plus two really four? It might be five. Well, you're doing that to prove the teacher's knowledge of that course material. And of course, at Liberty University, we see that all the time. So he tried to put Jesus to the test. What's so interesting, as Jesus is looking at this doctorate of the law, he just got done saying that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you have revealed them to little children. And I think something we need to understand before we get into this passage, ladies and gentlemen, is that we're seeing our Lord this morning not as maybe we thought he always is in this story, which is Jesus, Jesus, meek and mild. Jesus is going to use question after question after question to trip up this lawyer. And he's going to pose it in such a way, almost with humor and sarcasm, Because this is the bread of life speaking to this man who wanted to test heaven. Now, of course, this question to Jesus is not something new, right? We know Nicodemus asked this in John 3. And then, of course, we know the rich young ruler also, the rich young man also asked this in Matthew chapter 19. So this was a common question presented to the Lord. How do we inherit eternal life? So he said to him in verse 26, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered him, Perfectly. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. That was a perfect answer. Deuteronomy chapter 6 Leviticus chapter 19, verbatim. He had the exact answer to the law. Did he not realize that he was speaking to eternal life right in the face? Did he not understand that even through his desire, as we're going to find out, to justify himself, he was looking at God who wrote the law who upholds the law by the very word of his power? No. You are going to see this morning the defilement of a religiously self-righteous individual because he's trying to prove God wrong. And any religious attempt to prove God wrong is always going to fail. And any religious attempt to try to prove God without the merit of grace is always going to fail. Now this lawyer was so well versed in the the, the law of Moses, he adopted a theology called deutotronistic theology. Which is, if I do this, I will die. But if I do this, I will live. Completely based on work. Do this, live. Do this, be put to death. That is something he well 
he knew very, very well. There is no record of grace in this man's speech. What is so funny, at the end of Deuteronomy, what happens? Who cannot go into the promised land? Moses. That is amazing because it was Moses who, it was to Moses the law was given. It was Moses who was said, you are the meekest and the most humblest man of all the earth. The very law was passed through his hands. Yet he couldn't even keep it. He couldn't even go to the promised land. And so we have this doctorate of the law thinking he can. And he has no idea what's about to hit him in the face. With all your mind and with your neighbor as yourself, he, he, he answers the law perfectly. Now again, this, like the other question, eternal life, is, is a complete parallel passage. This isn't new to Jesus. Go with me to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. Matthew, Mark, it's right before Luke. A few pages over to the left. Mark chapter 12, verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing what, that he answered them well, asked them, again, we have another scribe trying to test Jesus, which commandment is the most important? Jesus answered, the most important is this, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love the neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right. The scribe saying to the rabbi, you are right. That's, wow. You have truly said that he is one and there is no one other besides him. And to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Why? Why are these two things, this love before God and before your neighbor, the most important out of all of the law? Because every single sin you will commit on this earth is a sin against God. And every other sin that you may not think is against God is against who? Your neighbor. Remember King David in Psalm 51. He was quite the, uh, quite the king. Remember he took a census of all of Israel. Remember how he murdered Uriah the Hittite, because why? Because he had an affair with his wife, Bathsheba. And so he has an affair with a woman, he sends a man to the front lines of combat to get completely slaughtered, which he does, he dies. He deceives all of his generals, all of his colonels in the Israeli army, and here we go, what is he saying in Psalm 51? Before you and you only have I sinned. Because David knew that his sins, although they were completely against another woman, another man, all of these professional military people, he knew that he was sinning against a holy God. Wow. Matthew chapter 22, the same exact passage, but something else even surfaces 
that will aid our study in Luke chapter 10. In verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, look who it is, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. Let's go back to Luke. We won't be flipping anywhere else, so you can give your fingers a break. So do you see what Jesus Christ is doing in our passage this morning? He is setting up this doctor. He is setting up this lawyer to basically put him in a corner. He is basically bringing up all of the power of the law and he's literally going to shove it in his face. And at the end of it, he's going to challenge him to uphold every single bit of it, which is humanly impossible. Notice also that the construct of this whole entire passage is based on questions. The the lawyer asks a question, then Jesus reverses it and asks a question, then the lawyer asks another question, and then Jesus asks another question, and then he's going to basically answer the question that the lawyer asked at the very beginning in verse 36, which will be the conclusion of this morning's message. So it's just a bunch of questioning going back and forth, but he's questioning God. Verse 28, and he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Please understand what Jesus is not saying here. He's saying, good job. He's not saying, good job, lawyer. Way to do it. Way to memorize your, your, your Torah. Way to memorize the Pentateuch. Good job. He's saying, you've just condemned yourself. You have just condemned yourself. You answered the law perfectly. You go and fulfill every single dot of the law, and you will live. Which again, as Romans chapter 3 says, you cannot do it. You will die. Verse 29, but he, the lawyer, this guy is a real smart Alec. Desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? At this point, Jesus, please understand the long suffering of our Lord for us, right? At this point, the God man, Jesus, could literally said, I'm done with you. I'm going to go do this thing with Mary and Martha now. See you later. And leave. But Jesus continues on with this man who is so deluded in his self righteous attitude. And we know that Jesus pitched this question in such a way because it so stung the lawyer. Why? How do we know that? Well, because he seeks to justify himself. Have you ever been proved by somebody to be wrong? Have you you ever ever been told something that kind of jided you a different way? 
Have you ever been stung by somebody and you want to just flip through that book real quick and okay, wait a minute, I, I, wanted, wait, I want to defend my honor. And so Jesus completely just drives an arrow into this lawyer's heart and he wants to justify himself. Who is my neighbor? The lawyer completely misses the point. What is, he, what is, what is the lawyer asking? Who is my neighbor? Who is, who, who is in my box of Jews that I can be this to, Jesus? Who are the people in my sphere of influence? Please don't say the Gentiles. Please don't say the proselytes. Please don't say anything else except the Jews that I want to love and the Jews that I will absolutely be that to. Jesus is about to embarrass this lawyer. And if we listen to the Holy Spirit through his word, he may embarrass us this morning. Jesus replied in verse 30 with a story. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. You never go down to Jerusalem. If you've ever been to Israel, you always go up to Jerusalem. It's about 17 miles or so. Excuse me, the path from Jerusalem to Jericho is about 17 miles. And Jerusalem itself is over 1,000 feet above sea level. It is just a mammoth, awesome place to be. But it's above sea level. Jericho is about 11 feet below sea level. And the road there that this man is found on is what Jerome, a church father, would say is a bloody road. Because it is true that there was this road, and it's still there today. If you've been there, it's a really windy, kind of scary as you're looking over the edge type of road. And it would be easy to hide in rocks and caves and things like this and completely jump out and attack people. That is a true point of the story. That is just known by everybody if you've been there and if you've read about it. And so this man, he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, why did these people strip him? Why not just take his money and just leave his clothes on? Why is he naked now? I mean, this is a humiliating thing. Well, because back then, <clears throat> clothing was costly. It, it, your wealth was seen in the money you had and the clothes you wore. My generation has stores like H&M. You can buy a suit for under 50 bucks. That old century church didn't have that, or excuse me, that first century era didn't have that. And so what they saved and what they worked for was found in their clothing. And so this man is literally robbed of every single possible resource he has on earth. No credit cards, no Western Union, nothing is near this man. He is completely desolate before these robbers. Verse 31, now by chance, <clears throat> a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now there is a lot of speculation. A lot of people begin to assume things about these characters and kind of put things into the story. Well, you know, this was a priest, and that was a Levite, and this is a man who's probably a Jew, and they, they make all these assumptions. But remember, it is a story. These people don't exist. Some parts of the story do exist in reality, but some do not. And so who this priest was 
we don't know, but that's not the point. But I think it might be important, noting a few things about this priest. He is a priest. We know in Hebrews chapter 5 that the priest should have compassion on people. After all, the priest was charged with making sacrifices for the people and being able to mediate between the needs of the people. He himself, it says in Hebrews 5, being beset with his own weaknesses before a holy God. Clearly, if he was a good priest, and I'm assuming he was, he would have known about Leviticus 19.34. He would have known about Micah chapter 6. He would have known about very other, various other passages that say this is what the priest should do for the people. You are to be a servant to the people. You are to have compassion and kindness and love and all of these things to the people. But this priest did not have it. In fact, the, there's a Greek word here that is only used here in the New Testament. And it literally means he just simply circumnavigated this corpse to go about his way. He saw him. Maybe he thought, oh, if I touch that body, I have to go back to Jerusalem. And if I touch that dead carcass, what, what is that going to make me a priest? Unclean. I will be dirty. I will be filthy if I get down and touch this dead man who may, who may, be still alive. <clears throat> and so the priest maybe didn't want to go back to Jerusalem. Maybe didn't want to take the hike or the walk that would require to go back. There's a lot of, again, we can speculate. But he simply passes him by. And then we have a Levite. No difference. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But look who decides to show up. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Please understand what Jesus is now doing at our, at our story this morning. He is now going to take something and completely jab it into the lawyer's heart. If you want to test God, fine. This is, this is what you need to hear. And for us in 2017, I, I, I suppose maybe if you were standing and you were being compared to as good Southern Baptists, as solid Bible-believing, Christ-following Christians, men and women who are sealed by the guarantee of the Holy Spirit, it's as if we were being compared to a Mormon, a Jehovah's Witness, a cult. After all, I, I'm, I am a Christian. I go to church on Sundays. Sometimes I go to midweek Bible study. I send checks to my grandkids and the people who I love. I am a good Christian. But what if the Mormon is literally outperforming you to people who you don't even know? What if the Catholic is doing that so much better? 
That is the weight on what Jesus is doing by pitching up the Samaritan in this story. We know that in 721, the Assyrian Empire came to the northern kingdom and completely ransacked all of Israel, right? And they amalgamated now for the first time in Jewish history, the Jews and the Gentiles. They begin to intermarry, they begin to have a whole bunch of children, and out pops the Samaritan religion. Half-breeds, a cult. They don't worship David, they don't believe in the temple, they, don't believe, they only believe in the first five books of the New Testament, or excuse me, the Old Testament, which is the Pentateuch. They have nothing to do with the prophets, they have nothing to do with the regulations of the law, they only want what they want. They are a bona fide cult to the Jews. If in that century you were called a Samaritan by a Jew, think of the most bombastic, the most derogatory term you can call another human being. That is exactly what it meant to be a Samaritan at that time. So Jesus now is lifting up this character of the Samaritan right before the lawyer, right before the doctrine of the law, saying, look at his character. Can you imagine? And so what did this Samaritan do? He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Are you kidding me? The Samaritan doesn't even know this guy. The Samaritan has probably been the backside of every Jewish joke known to mankind at that time. So this man may be a Jew. What is he doing? He's being a neighbor. Verse 35, and on the next day, he took out two denarii, which was about a month or two's wage of salary. And he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Please keep in mind that, again, back then, they didn't have the American Express credit card, right? They didn't have the Visa black card that feels like platinum. They didn't have anything that you could just swipe and forget about and keep moving forward. Back then, if you could not pay your dues, you would become an indentured slave of whatever you borrowed. So this good Samaritan is literally reaping up so much resource for this enemy possibly, if anything, a nobody, so that he wouldn't become a slave of this inn. And why is he being put to an inn? That's weird. Put some bandages on him. Pour some oil on. Do those things that would probably be medicinal remedies for those bruises and cuts and lashes. Knife strikes. Why is he doing this? Well, probably because the man's body is absolutely broken. And will need time to mend and heal in a place that is safe and secure. What we are seeing, we are seeing the good Samaritan be the good neighbor. The lawyer got the question completely wrong. He asks Jesus, who is my good neighbor? The question he should have asked is, am I a neighbor? Question mark. Am I a person that is doing these things that now you are about to describe to me what should be a good neighbor? 
This man's theology was so confused. He could have looked around easily and saw as a lawyer at that time the many broken, the many hurting, the many people who were completely astray and began to apply what the law would teach, which is compassion and kindness and generosity and everything else. But he chose not to do it because he was so self-righteous. What an attitude. It is clear that Jesus is driving home a point that will make this man walk away embarrassed. Verse 35, And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Who does this? Who does this? Who will literally empty all of their resources? Who will literally give all that they have to somebody they don't even know? When is the last time you did this to somebody? I do it for my, my, my sister, Margaret. I do it for my son, Charles. He's at UVA. I, I, fine, that's great. We're talking about an enemy, though. We're talking about somebody who you would be driving alongside of the road and seeing on the I-22 completely abandoned, bloody, and broken. I have never done that. I have never been able, I have never walked over to somebody who is so in need and literally say, like my own child, I will provide for you. I will give for you. I will bless and take care of your needs, whatever the cost may be. Perfect love. For a stranger, we are looking at the law. Nobody can do that. And the moment you think, well, actually, um, fill in pastor guy up there for Dr. Wheeler, I have once. I've done it once, way back, 1984. Um, I was driving that one day, and I, we didn't have credit cards. I wrote a really good check, and he was great, and now he's saved. Well, great. Keep trying to fulfill the perfect law. You can't do this every single day. And the moment you think you can, congratulations, you now are the lawyer. There is no record of grace in this whole entire passage. Not one. There is just the law, even in love. Verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. This guy. He can't even say Samaritan. He can't even say the good Samaritan. He is so proud of his religion that all he can say is the one who showed mercy. Turn with me to Luke 18. If you, I know we flipped around a lot. I, I know I said we wouldn't, but this is important. Keep, keep your hand on Luke 10. We'll go right back. 
Verse 9, he also told another parable to some who were trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Remember what was happening with the lawyer. What was he trying to do? Justify himself. Make himself righteous. And treated others with contempt. So here he goes, verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, idolaters, or even like this tax collector, who, by the way, was the, the off-scoring of the world back then. If I, I fast twice a week. I, I give tithes of, of all that I get. But the tax collector standing afar off because this man's personal self-righteous holiness was so emulating from him would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to the house, his house, justified. Justified. At this point in our story in Luke chapter 10, the lawyer should have had that same posture. Standing and beholding God, incarnate, looking at him, the living water, the bread of life. The embodiment of eternal life is staring right at him. And he can't even say good Samaritan. And Jesus said to him, and we'll close, you go and you do likewise. Jesus knowing that he couldn't do that. It is like a nail in the coffin to this lawyer who thought he could inherit eternal life by doing good works, by loving absolutely as the law would require. He can't do this. But what does this all mean for us, though? What is the pastoral reflection? What is the practical application? Okay, we get it. The lawyer, he's not really a good dude. He doesn't know anything about grace. Jesus is basically nailing him to his own self-righteous cross. What's going on here? It is a very sad day in Christendom when a Christian who is sealed of the Holy Spirit of God, who is walking and following after his Lord step for step, can be upshone and outshowed by somebody who doesn't even have that seal. We as Christians should be that. If it is true that the Good Samaritan is a picture of Jesus Christ, after all, who came to earth? Who bought you a ticket out of slavery? Who paid for you the ultimate cost? Who did all of these things? Jesus Christ did. Jesus is the Good Samaritan. Shouldn't we be following his lead? Shouldn't we take well this exhortation from our Lord? You go and you do likewise? Well, how does that work itself out? Peter, the apostle, in his epistle, chapter 2, it says that Jesus was an example for us to follow in. 
Ephesians chapter 4, moving on to about chapter 6, over seven times, the great apostle Paul will say, walk this way, walk this way, walk this way, walk this way. They will know that you belong to me by your love for one another. This is not a hard thing to bear when we know that the one who's commissioning us to do this is full of grace and is full of mercy and is full of truth. So, dear Christian, it shouldn't be hard for you and I this, this week and it be the anthem of our life, our legacy for those to follow that we are following Christ, not the law. We are following in grace, compassion, and kindness, and long-suffering, and bearing with one another. You know, it's funny. Paul would say that we are to do good to all men. And then he says, especially to the household of faith. How do you be a good Samaritan today? Well, how are you treating your fellow Christian first? How are you treating your wife? How are you treating your husband? How are you treating your children? How are you treating your mother? How are you treating your father? Because if you don't have that right, surely a naked man on the side of the road who's literally bleeding out of his sides is going to be way too much of a task for you. But if you start nuclear and let that permeate your life, God, through his Holy Spirit, can do so much in and through you, which is also his good will and pleasure. Again, this is a very high standard. One that if we try to do in our own works and our own efforts, we will fall time and time again. But God, by his grace, can empower the church to do the best good, the most good, here in Rocky Mount to the ends of the earth. If only we would be so sensitive to his Holy Spirit and follow his lead. Let's pray.